2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, first we get the latest on the wildfires that continue to burn out of control in Northern California. Then Al Sharpton joins us to talk about his new book, Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. After delivering the eulogy at George Floyd's funeral, the longtime civil rights activist has written a call to action on police brutality as well as climate change, LGBTQ rights, and the treatment of immigrants. Sharpton weaves in his personal story and the lessons he's learned from past mistakes, and says there are also uncomfortable truths that liberals and Black Americans must confront. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More than 68,000 people in Sonoma and Napa counties are under evacuation orders, with more residents being warned to prepare to flee their homes. The Glass Fire, which now includes the Shady and Boysen fires, has grown fast. And meantime, three people have died from the Zog Fire in Shasta County. Joining me now is KQED's Dan Brecky. Hi, Dan.
3: Hey. Hey, Mina.
2: Can you give us a quick update on the Zog Fire in Shasta County? Where is that at?
3: Um yeah, this is southwest of the uh city of Reading. Uh started on Sunday afternoon and uh this is a fire that grew very, very rapidly and raced through a couple of uh uh small communities, uh Ono and Igo, uh southwest of Reading, as I said, and three people uh died. Um we don't know anything about the circumstances uh There's going to be an update at 11 o'clock this morning from Cal Fire and the sheriff on on what's going on up there. But the fire has burned. You know, this is going to sound uh, dreadfully familiar to people, uh, 40,000 acres, and it's 0% contained. Um, The one piece of good news probably is that there's a break in the weather uh, everywhere in, in Northern California this morning.
2: Yeah, so firefighters are hoping to gain some ground on that. In the meantime, we have been learning more about some of the lost structures in the Napa and Sonoma County fires, the Glass Fire. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've heard?
3: Well, you know, there's... We're we're still at a very early stage of damage assessment, Um, but people have been, the the headline items have been a couple of uh, signature resorts up there in uh, the North Bay, the uh, Calistoga Ranch and Meadowood resorts that uh, both sustained very heavy damage. And um, there have been you know, as as Gabe Moline uh, pointed out during the last hour, our KQED senior arts editor, mm-hmm. um, there's who, who lives up there. Um, there's lots of other impacts uh, with uh, major facilities that are threatened. For instance, the um, the youth uh, uh, justice facility up there uh, was one of the places that needed to be evacuated, and there have been. Uh, homeless uh, encampments that have, you know, sanctioned homeless uh, uh, areas that have been impacted as well. So uh, as I said, we're kind of early early hours here in terms of uh, figuring out exactly what's been damaged.
2: Yes, I had heard about that community of tiny homes for homeless people that burned down. And I mean, the estimates were at 8,500 or so structures burned. And as you say, Right now, it's an untold number because they do have so much difficulty in terms of trying to get some sense of the amount of damage that we have seen. Can you give me a sense of what you might be hearing on the ground in terms of how the firefighters are doing what they're facing and what their plans are to try to take advantage of this break in the weather that you mentioned?
3: Well, you know, the, the break in the weather is uh, the winds have largely died down. Um, in the North Bay, in those higher elevations where, uh, you know, the fire conditions have been a real problem, it's still really warm and uh, it's very, very dry still. So that will uh, lead to increased fire activity during the day. What, one of the things that's happening up there now, while there is still active fire, especially uh, northeast of uh, Calistoga, Um, While while that's going on, um, you know, the firefighters would typically be launching sort of this uh, air attack. But right now, uh, things are so overcast and uh, smoky Mm -hmm. that that doesn't appear to be happening yet. So that's one thing to look for in terms of, uh, you know, whether they're going to be able to limit the spread further today.
2: Well, we're certainly going to keep an eye on it all. Dan Brecke, thanks so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Dan Brecky from KQED, who's been following the fires that are burning out of control in Northern California. We're joined now by the Reverend Al Sharpton. As this nation confronts racial injustice and COVID-19, Sharpton has released today a call to action. It's titled Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. Al Sharpton is the host of MSNBC's Politics Nation, the nationally syndicated radio show Keeping It Real, and the founder and president of the National Action Network. Thanks so much for joining us, Reverend Al Sharpton.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: And congratulations on this book that has published today, Rise Up. You know, one of the things that I was really struck by was one of the early lines in your book where you say, I'm the guy who came up from the pile. You write, that's why my clothes are still muddy. What does it mean to come up from the pile?
4: Well, I came up uh, in a single parent home in a city in the area they would call a ghetto. Uh, so, I did not come up uh, with, as I say in the book, uh, was as one of those that had lived a life in my young years of privilege, uh, or even uh, what is, quote, acceptable in terms of those in the circles uh, that uh, have influence and power. Uh, so, therefore, I on issues that I not only have studied, but I have lived and identified with. A lot of people, I think, uh, approach social justice moves or issues of political empowerment uh, from an academic point of view. I do uh, from a personal as well as academic and theological point of view.
2: Well, one of the places where a lot of people turn to you is especially when there is police violence against black people. And uh, of course, very recently, you delivered the eulogy at George Floyd's funeral. And I was wondering, what did you think about when you were preparing your eulogy? What did you feel like was the message that you thought people really needed to hear as so many people would be watching that event?
4: Well, I had gotten a call from, Uh, the attorney for the family, Ben Crump, who I call the Attorney General of Black America because he gets a lot of these calls as we do in National Action Network. And he told me that the family wanted me to stand and, and, and deal with this issue. So as I watched the tape, as most Americans had over and over again, I remember George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And it reminded me of a case in New York six years ago of Eric Garner, so I called Eric Garner's mother and said, "Let's go out there and do some rally or vigil." Hmm. And uh, we flew to Minneapolis. In fact, uh, the uh, actor-producer uh, <clears throat> Tyro Ty- Tyler Perry uh, sent a plane for us to go because it was during the pandemic, or it still is a pandemic, but it was even worse in the north at that time. And said that uh, you don't want to risk flying. And uh, we flew down, did a vigil at the scene. And all I could think about looking at that curve is how can anyone hold their knee on someone's neck that long without a lot of venom in them. eight minutes and 46 seconds. And hundreds joined us at the vigil. When I got back to New York later that evening, the family called and asked what i do the eulogy at the funeral, so I flew back. And I started preaching very young, so I don't, preached by manuscript. Uh, that's why I do my television show on MSNBC, basically not using a lot of uh, teleprompter script because I'm an extemporaneous speaker. Hmm. But I get set in my mind things that I want to say, two or three points. And as I was walking to the platform to give the eulogy, I thought about one of the reasons that would happen to George Floyd resonated so, is that the knee on the neck also was symbolic of the knee on the neck in every area of life that many of us in the Black community have suffered. Couldn't get a job promotion. Someone had their knee on our neck. Couldn't get the right school uh, in entry because someone had their knee on our neck. Couldn't get a promotion if we got the job. Couldn't get the right health care. And it occurred to me as I was speaking to say that, that get your knee off our neck. We could have been more than we have become if there was not somebody holding us down. And George would have been alive had they got their knee off the neck. So I wanted to give the message of what is the reason this hit us so in the gut and why there was such reaction. I also wanted to give a message, a second point, of challenging this country to deal with policing, that this was not an isolated incident. You must remember we had Breonna Taylor killed by police in her own home in Louisville, Kentucky. We had Rashad, uh, Rashid Brooks in Atlanta shot in the back at a Wendy's by policemen. All of this within the same three weeks. And non-policemen who used to work at the prosecutor's office, killing Ahmed Aubrey in Brunswick, Georgia. And all of this happening within the same three weeks, all of it going public, and the fact that most of the country was shut down, couldn't watch sports, had no distractions, no basketball, no baseball, or nothing. So everybody's watching this over and over again, because everyone's focused on the news because they want to know what's going on with the pandemic, when can I go out? And I think that is why a lot of people that may have seen the Eric Gardner videotape but didn't see it over and over again, cause they could turn and watch sports. or so they were going out to dinner or going to some other event. They were shut down, they couldn't avoid it. And I think yes. it caused an outpouring, unlike we've seen. And that is uh, what I wanted to uh, put out in that eulogy, is I wanted that challenge. And then I wanted to encourage the family to let them know that maybe God was using George Floyd to energize and ignite a movement that would make this country have to finally come to terms with policing, even under a hostile administration uh, in the person of Donald Trump's president.
2: Yes, I heard you express in the aftermath of George Floyd that you feel like, given all of those things that came together at the same time, that this could be A moment of real substantive change. We're talking with the Reverend Al Sharpton, a civil rights activist, founder and president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation on MSNBC. His newly released book is Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. We'll have more with him after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Stay with us. you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim, and we're talking to the Reverend Al Sharpton about his call to action at a time when he says America is ready for true change. His new book is Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. And Al Sharpton, just before the break, you had mentioned Breonna Taylor. And of course, there was some news that was breaking today about the fact that the uh, grand jury proceedings, the recordings of them in the Breonna Taylor case will be released it's a rather unusual step and i wanted to get your reaction to that news
4: well i think that immediately after the grand jury came back indicting none of the policemen for the killing of brianna taylor only indicting one policeman for recklessly endangering her neighbor's life nothing to do with her life her being recklessly endangered none of that uh, I think that uh, the attorney for the family, again, Ben Crump, who's attorney for that family as well, had called for the release of the grand jury minutes. Why? Because a grand jury is conducted by the prosecutor. No other lawyers are allowed to go before the grand jury. The family's attorney can't go. The defense attorneys can't go. You only are presented in a grand jury what the prosecutor wants to present. Therefore, you also are not presented with the prosecutor does not want to present, which is why a former New York state judge used to say you can indict a ham sandwich if you want. Well, the reverse is also true. You cannot indict if you don't want. So people wanted to know, and it was uh, uh, articulated by Attorney Crump, what did you put in front of this grand jury that they did not even see reckless manslaughter? of this innocent young woman killed in her own home. I think that what really pushed it over the line was a member of the grand jury filed a motion right. and announced it yesterday that they wanted the grand jury minutes released and said that there were some things that was uh, misstated. And once that happened, I think the Attorney General had no choice but to release it. And it's going to be interesting to see what was presented, what was not presented that led to this grand jury feeling that there was no criminal culpability at all from any of the police.
2: I mean, you've had many grieving families call you to bring attention to their loved one's death and Brianna Taylor's case, her killing was in March. And, uh, and as you say, it, and the same thing with Ahmad Arbery. I mean, a lot of these cases do not get a tremendous amount of attention unless something happens. When a grieving family calls, what do you say to them? How do you prepare them for what they will face?
4: It's very difficult. And, of course, uh, you've got different families in different situations. Uh, but it's difficult because you're dealing with people that did not plan to be in the middle of of a social justice movement, in the middle of a legal proceeding, in the middle of a a media frenzy. And I tell them that you need to prepare yourself for all of this. And if we get involved and help make it public, uh, in in the cases you mentioned, we did help. The first national interview that Breonna Taylor's mother uh, did was on Politics Nation with Ben Crump. I had not even heard of the case until Ben Crump had called me. Uh, and we do have done that with many cases. Trayvon Martin's mother wrote a book, how she came to me to make it national. And I, one of the things I tell them is, you're getting ready to experience being maligned. Your uh, deceased uh, relative, loved one, is going to be castigated because they're going to try to make the victim the villain. Uh, and you are going to have a change of life. We are going to be there for you, to help you with everything from, Whatever you need in terms of uh, legal advice, help you find the right lawyers if you need us to do that, help you with your expenses because people move around the rallies and all. How do they get that? Uh, many of them don't have the funds for that. And we're going to try to help if you need people to be therapy, get therapy and all for the families. And we'll be there when the cameras are gone. I, I talked to mothers today that I worked on their cases 25 years ago. I have a whole staff of 50 in National Action Network and six offices around the country. That's what we do, because you cannot deal with these issues as long as they keep them hidden. So I said, even in the eulogy, that uh, people uh, criticize me and say, Shopton just shows up to get media attention. That's exactly why I show up, because no one calls me to keep a secret They call me because they want to help make it a public attention, uh, attention, attraction. So out of that light that you focus on it, people have to deal with the crime. Now, in many cities, you have people organically rise up. And that's a good thing, because unless you can keep the public attention, those in power will not respond. Those in office will not uh, create new laws. And I learned that growing up in the North. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, but I joined Dr. King's organization the year he was killed. I was 13 years old. I became youth director of the New York chapter. Martin Luther King never sat on a bench as a judge, never was a lawyer, never was in a legislature. He mastered creating public attention. And that's what those of us that came in that tradition tried to learn how to do. Of course, nobody equals Dr. King But his tradition was that you must put a light on dark places otherwise in the darkness people will continue to behave in criminal and immoral way
2: and you do have a section in your book where you do talk about how important it is to engage the media and give practical advice to activists for doing that you also tell activists, you know, to how to get started, which is what your book is in many ways, a call to action in terms of identifying priorities, starting small, doing your homework, and really understanding your opposition. With everything that is going on, where are you focused right now? What are your specific priorities?
4: Our focus right now is, A, we are trying to get the George Floyd Policing and Justice Act passed in the Senate. It's already passed House of Representatives. Right. In that act, it will deal with the making it a federal offense for a law enforcement officer to use suppression on someone. That could be a need to the neck, that could be a chokehold, as in the case of Eric Garner. Second, it removes it removes the immunity from police where they cannot be personally sued. All of these lawsuits where you hear the uh, amounts of money that victims' families get, and they should get them, by the way, uh, but it shouldn't stop there because you shouldn't be able to pay somebody for the right to kill a loved one. They should get them because of the damages, but they are all paid for by the city. If a policeman knows that he himself can lose his house, lose his car, he can be liable, he or she would be very careful then to follow the training and follow their book of, of procedures if they know they had some skin in the game. That's in the bill. And uh, the policeman's record, if he has a record of complaints of harassment or other incidents, all of that becomes public. So we're trying to get that bill passed. We're also trying to get the John Lewis voting rights bill passed, which also has passed the House and not been brought to the Senate. Mitch McConnell has refused to schedule either bill. It's interesting. He couldn't uh, schedule the policing bill. He couldn't schedule the voting rights bill. He couldn't schedule a second stimulus uh, bill where people have run out of money from the first stimulus bill. But they can go and schedule confirming a new Supreme Court justice that uh, just occurred because Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Very interesting on their priorities. So that's where we're focused in trying to get those legislations as we continue in our demonstration.
2: We're we're talking with Al Sharpton, civil rights leader, founder and president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation on MSNBC. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have for Al Sharpton? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQBD Forum or email your questions or comments to Forum at KQED.org. Why do you say defund the police is a misnomer?
4: I say that it has been distorted by some of us that have embraced it. Some uh, have embraced it uh, other ways. Our way of saying it is to take those funds and reimagining how policing should be done. There should be funds put into mental health. There should be funds put into community policing there should be funds dealing with the underlying problems in the communities in terms of education and daycare and all. So we're not saying from our perspective, now there are others that from their perspective said, but we're not saying remove all police, we're saying to do a retraining of where they are integrated in the community. In many of the communities that we serve and are part of, we have the problem of gun violence and police violence so we need some form of policing but we don't need to keep doing what does not work why would you keep financing something that has proven to be ineffective
2: Hmm. that's why you you almost say defang The police was sort of what you used interestingly right as i asked you that question um a a comment came through to me justin writes defund the police is not the best message what about refund the police add more funding and change its allocation i don't know if you'd go that far but do you agree that it requires more funding and needs a change in allocation
4: i think that uh if, if if you were going to uh add any further allocation it must be first on a format of a new way that we deal with policing in the country. The irony of it though is that the one who has done more to defund policing, if that is the object if, if that is what is objectionable to the right wing, is Donald Trump because his mishandling of COVID-19 has put a lot of cities in the red and they're laying off people in law enforcement. So at one hand, he's against defunding or even reimagining policing. At another, he's causing it himself because they are close to bankrupting many cities.
2: Well, you know, that is one of several things that you you sort of take on in terms of the left, the left looking at itself, the left trying to deal with unifying, clarifying its message. And you also say in some ways, a give and take like, you know, don't let you don't necessarily say this specifically, but the general idea is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Do you think that there's too much of that going on?
4: Yeah, what I talk about, I call them latte liberals. A lot of people that sit up in parlors and uh, sip lattes and have these purist things that this is our 10-point plan, and if you don't agree with all 10 points and do it our way, then you are not progressive enough. No, there are many of us that do things differently but if the ultimate goal is to get us the same place let's not be purists let's not deal with it in in a way that would be exclusionary winning the fights for social justice is about addition not subtraction and we should be able to expand the base of support and uh like as we saw with george floyd there were many demonstrations and and marches that i went to Where there were more whites than blacks. And some say, oh, we don't need all of these allies. We need all the allies we can get in a battle to get new legislation and to get police to be accountable. And I think that too many of us come with rigid, inflexible, purist kinds of rules. And that becomes the goal rather than establishing justice and fairness.
2: You know, you devote an entire chapter to talking about LGBTQ rights, and you call out homophobia and transphobia in the black community. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you felt like it was important to really raise that and and to try to address it.
4: First of all, those that are homophobic and that use the laws against uh, the Uh, the LGBTQ community are also usually uh, the ones that are inclined to be anti-Black, anti-Semitic. We have more in common than we do apart. Now we may have different cultures, different orientation, but we are all subjected to the violation of our human and civil rights. And rather than say, I suffered more than you, it's not about comparing pain, it's about uniting to gain the power to protect our own civil and human rights. I'm a firm believer you can't fight for civil rights for anybody unless you're gonna fight for everybody. And I grew up uh, with a sister who was gay since I was a kid. I write about it in the book. And she was the one that taught me that she faced racism being black. She faced gender inequality being a female and homophobia. So I'm supposed to fight for black rights, but not a gay rights. How do you split that up? How do you slice that apple? I think that it had to be addressed. I remember that when I came out in around 2002, said that I even supported people's right to have a same-sex marriage. I had ministers who have worked with me and been a part of the National Action Network, and I preach at their churches on an annual basis, say, I don't know if you can come this year, Reverend, because some of our people against that. And I said, well, I just won't come because right is right. People have the right to make their decisions, even if we disagree with their decisions. They have the right to do it as long as they're not harming or, or, or infringing on the rights of others. And I felt that given uh, me having a public profile that I needed to address that. And so I wrote a whole chapter on LGBTQ rights. I talk about when I was a teenager and uh, had Started my own youth group after leading uh, the youth department of uh, Operation Breadbasket in New York. I started my own group when I was 16. I went to a man to help me as I was trying to get off the ground. He was one of the major strategists and tacticians of that day. And this is in the 70s. name was Bayard Rustin. He was yeah. the main strategist behind the March on Washington in 1963. But he had to stay at a distance because he was gay. And the homophobia, even in the movement, said, well, Bayard is brilliant, but he's got to stay over there. And I think that's a robbery of our history. Finally, he started to get some de- recognitions later in life and in his death. And I looked at personally with my sister and Bayard and others that we need to address homophobia, even in our community.
2: Yeah, I really liked the story about how your sister helped you evolve. And then the section that you do talk about Bayard Reston, who is... Earlier this year in California, pardoned by Governor Newsom when he was prosecuted under an anti-gay discriminatory law. So it really did come together and you have had some incredible mentors. Um, Let me bring some callers who'd like to talk to you into this conversation. Brad in Foster City, go right ahead. Hi, Brad.
3: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Really like what was being said just uh, within the last few minutes. Uh, Really, my question is in the field for personal trainers, and uh, everyday people who drive we have to pay a premium for an insurance policy and i know in liability personal liability policy for a trainer why don't the this get passed where police as part of the job have to carry a personal uh, insurance policy huh. that where they would they would have their premiums adversely affected if they have a lot of complaints uh, against them or if it's you know where there could be consequences if they fire their weapon just to, so that they have skin in the game because right now I feel like anything they do do it's really on the public which is not right and I think they need to hold you know be just just be liable uh, personally. Brad um, thanks
2: I, I'm going to just jump in here because your line's clicking a bit and we're coming up on a break uh, Reverend Al Sharpton thoughts about liability insurance a, for police? A,
4: a very innovative and novel idea that I would be inclined to want to follow up it makes sense it deals with again accountability and it deals with removing the immunity from them, where they can behave any way and have no personal liability themselves. Very interesting concept.
2: And again, we're talking with Reverend Al Sharpton about his new book, "Rise Up: Confronting a Country at the Crossroads." I should also mention that uh, book passage will hold a virtual conversation with Reverend Sharpton and Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black uh, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and it will be held at five thirty p.m. Thursday, October first. But the Reverend is here with us now, so if you have questions, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to the Reverend Al Sharpton, the Baptist minister, former presidential candidate, founder of the National Action Network. He's also the man who helped popularize the 1980 cry of no justice no peace. He is calling for a new wave of activism in his new book, Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, reaching out to us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or emailing us at forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Steve in Oakland. Hi, Steve.
0: Hi, uh, Mr. Sharpin, I'm a huge fan. Um, When you're on As a guest on MSNBC, you don't waste a single word in your articulation. Um, I'm a Mexican-American man from East Oakland, and I've had this idea of how to get out the young vote, especially in swing states. And I've called every organization imaginable, and I can't get through. And I keep saying, don't give up, don't give up. And we're getting close to the end. I'm running out of time, and I just need some advice on how to get through to any organization that might listen to this idea, give give it some and and maybe even help me execute it. I'm a working man. I don't have time.
4: You can call us, National Action Network, at uh, the toll free number 877 626 4651 and ask for Reverend Toon. I will email him and tell him I told you to call. We'd love to get those ideas. We're on the ground now protecting the vote in a nonpartisan way all over the country. And uh, we have a a state chapter as well as a chapter right there in Sacramento, Reverend Porter. So call Reverend Toon and and let's hear what your idea is.
2: Well, Steve, thanks. Let me go next to Josh in San Francisco. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. Are you with us? All right. Well, while we wait to connect to Josh, let me see if I can get to Shabazz in Oakland. Hi, Shabazz.
1: Yeah, good morning. Um, uh, I'd like to... uh, um, Rev. Sharpton, I'm, I'm also a veteran of the Civil Rights uh, Movement, uh, Rev. Sharpton. I'm, I'm from Mississippi, and I, I was uh, project director for COFO in Central Mississippi. There, and I helped organize uh, all of the major marches uh, that you see: the MFDP March on Washington, Selma, and Montgomery, uh, Meredith March against Fear, all of that. So, um, and was one of the leaders in the voter registration or drive uh, the long, hot summer, as they call it. So I'm very familiar with the Civil Rights Movement and where we are. Uh, But my my comment is that, don't you think that it's time for us to move beyond marching and protesting, which do serve a good purpose, uh, uh, but right now we have no economics. We need to start encouraging African Americans to develop uh, businesses, uh, and so that we can supply uh, all of the services that we spend our resources on. And, and with economic independence, then we have political power. We, like other groups, all other groups that you see, uh, with political power, they also have economic stability in their communities. And last but not least, I have to differ with you on the LGBT community. Uh, it's not that anybody is anti-people, but uh, it's a moral issue. And, and and the black community, the struggle of the black community, had nothing to do with homosexuality and, and how people have sex. Well, Shabazz, and, uh, I think you put a
2: lot out there that I'd love to give the... Uh the Reverend Al Sharpton, a chance to respond to.
4: Let me respond this way. First of all, uh, I think that in terms of the marching and and demonstrating, I don't think it's a one or the other. It's both and. Uh, You need the marching and demonstrating to put a spotlight on a problem. And yes, we do need economic empowerment. And we can only get it if we are able to be Politically powerful enough to do it. Give you an example. If I wanted to open a store or a business in Oakland, I'd have to be zoned to be able to open that store. That's political. Uh, If I wanted to deal with banking, I'd have to go to a bank and deal with those regulations of that bank, even to open an account. That's political. So it's not one or the other. You can't just go and open a business empire because you want to do it. You've got to deal with the politics, you've got to deal with the legislation. In order to deal with the politics and the legislation, you've got to put a spotlight on where it is unfair, where there's some uh, that are zoned certain ways, some that are regulated other ways. And in terms of LGBTQ being moral, first of all, it is who defines what is moral. If you believe something, you have the right to practice that. But if somebody believes something else, you don't have the right to impose your morality on others there were those that said it was immoral for people to intermarry racially there were those that said it was immoral for blacks to sit next to whites on a bus so we cannot impose our morality you can practice it but you can't impose it on others it is not your or my choice i'm a baptist preacher. i believe in the baptist church but i don't believe i have the right to force you to believe in what i believe in You have the right to choose your beliefs, and as long as it doesn't infringe on others, you have the right to practice it, because I don't want you to get in power and be able to outlaw me being a Baptist.
2: You write in your book, the hardest job of being a preacher is to eulogize the life of someone who did nothing. And you say, so I say, give me something to work with, and I wanted to ask you, what What does that mean? What is a life in your definition that did something?
4: You know, uh, where I I came with that observation, several years ago, Michael Jackson, the pop star, died. And I did the eulogy at his funeral. And I did the eulogy at his burial. And I'll never forget when I was coming out of the cemetery that evening, a well-known artist, if I called his name, most of your listeners would know. Uh, but I won't call his name. He called over to me and he said, Reverend Al, I said, yeah. He said, "Uh, I was very moved by your eulogy. I said, well, thank you. He said, no, it really got to me. And if I go first, I want you to do a eulogy for me just like that. And I said, well, you're going to have to give me something to work with. I can't get up there and just say something. I could talk about some of the things that Michael did in a humanitarian way more than himself. Life is not about just owning things cars, houses, all of that will be sold or used by others two minutes after you're gone. Life is about how did you affect more than yourself for the good of more than your own self-aggrandizement. If all you do in life is for yourself, when you leave, and all of us are going to leave here, when you leave, it will not matter to anybody but yourself. Yes, live a comfortable life. Yes, have nice things. But put a part of your life aside to say the meaning of my life is I contributed to the whole of humanity in the time in which I lived and helped to deal with the challenges that would infringe upon everyone having a full and abundant life.
2: How do you reckon with people's past mistakes when you're trying to focus on that? And I ask this knowing that you yourself have been very honest about doing that as well just personally. Right. Like someone like uh, Michael, who has made serious, uh, you know, past mistakes, for lack of a better way of of phrasing it.
4: I think that you've got to make them come to terms with it. You've got to uh, make them come to terms with it like you and I have to come to terms with our mistakes and be honest about how we've got to overcome them. And we've got to deal with them and turn our lack into lessons that we say to others. Uh, that you can get beyond this, but you can't get beyond it if you're in denial or if you can try and paper it up. And I think that all of us have to do that and, and reflect on that every day. I have a birthday this Saturday, and I think about over my life mistakes I've made and had to overcome and try to do better. None of us have lived flawless lives, but many of us avoid ever having to confront our flaws Deal with our flaws and try to grow beyond them. And the, one of the real signs to show you grow is to admit them and help teach others don't do this or don't use this kind of temptation to do something else. that may manifest differently because that's the mistakes that I made motivated the same way you may have a motivation and you can help others.
2: I thought it was interesting Uh, when you reflected on the role of being a showman. I mean, you clearly understand the power of it, but you were talking about as you grew up, right? And I mean, when you say that you preach at a young age, I mean, you started preaching at like the age of four and you were ordained uh, by 10. But as you grew up, you realized that uh, it was not so... You didn't want to just be a performer, that uh, you really wanted to have sort of substance behind it. I was wondering, you know... First, who's your inspiration for for recognizing and getting attention and being a showman and, and seeing what that power was? Um, well, growing
4: up in the black church, you learn a lot from ministers that I watched because I was a kid. And you learn the, uh, the showmanship of the pulpit and you learn how to handle a crowd. And then as I grew, uh, even in the church, I got around a lot of gospel performers, Mahalia Jackson, who was the queen of gospel. And in my teen years, I became very close with James Brown, the godfather of soul. His son was the same age as me, his oldest son, who was killed in a car accident. So nobody mastered the stage like James Brown. But I learned that just having the showmanship with no substance, not only will not help those that are watching you, it's an emptiness in you. What are you using the showmanship to show? Just your ability to entertain, are you an entertainer? Or are you really an activist or a minister? Now, it is good to have the ability to use showmanship for something other than the show. If you can use that to attract people to a cause, like a George Floyd bill, or like a situation that happened right out there where you are on the West Coast with Stephon Clark, then fine, use your showmanship to put that spotlight on there. But just to have a showmanship for your own self-aggrandizement not only will not help those that are watching you, it will lead to an emptiness in you that you will do
2: negative things to fill that emptiness. Well, let me go to Josh in San Francisco again. Hi, Josh. I think you are back with us now. Join us.
4: Hi, can you,
0: can you hear me?
2: I can now, yeah.
0: Okay, great. Um, hi, Reverend Sharpton. Um, so my question is two-part, if that's okay. One is, um, you know, I, was, I guess I was lucky to grow up in an area in Maryland, in Columbia, Maryland, that was um pretty spread out demographically, so it was almost like an urban environment in terms of uh it was a suburb but there was a lot of different people. And my high school was almost fifty percent black people, so I had a lot of luck in that uh even in my county. But my question is really how um how what's your advice for white people that you know they wanna be part of the conversation but not to be too assuming and just how, you know, can people especially Being around other white people, there's a lot of different levels and layers of racism, and so maybe you could advise me on that. And then the other part is, um, what you know, is racism? Would you say coming from um, a, a a group that is overpowering others, or is it more universal, so it spreads across all cultures and all people? And how how could you? Uh,
4: advise me on that. Well, I, I, to the first part of your question, I think that uh, the way to get involved is to be uh, one that comes to openly try and help to fit in to something that is going to work to solve the inequality and unfairness between the races and not with a sense of entitlement or that you're smarter or that you're dumber, but that you're willing to learn but work as you go, and I think that it is important we have allies, but allies should be allies and grow with us, not come in and say, I think y'all ought to do it this way and I'm in charge, or not that you are just there to do something menial, but something concrete together. All movements that have succeeded have been able to expand and have allies, and I think that That's one of the things with this George Floyd movement, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, that I've uh, uh, been most impressed with is that there has been more diversity and we need more than that. And there are different models of activists. Mine comes out of the Black church and is a more structured civil rights organization. Others are organic. Others are a mixture of the two. None is right or wrong. It's what your comfort level is. You should be a part of what makes you comfortable as long as we're going for the same uh, thing and and the same goals. And it was always that. The caller that was in Mississippi could could tell you that we had Dr. King and uh, the NAACP and other groups, structured organizations. But then there were those that were the freedom riders. Dr. King wasn't a freedom rider. He never got on the bus. Those were students. And it was an organic movement. Then there were those that did the summer of 64 that he referred to that were grassroots organizers that didn't want charismatic leadership. So that's not new to now. People cover that now like that's new. It's not new. It has always been the mixture between a Dr. King in in a structured organization and a Ella Baker who was more for having people uh, organically organized and an Adam Clayton Powell who was in the Congress and a Thurgood Marshall who was in the court's all at the same time they operate at the same time so how do we get to the 21st century with more technology than we ever had and we can only do it one way at a time of course that's ridiculous and i think that we need to build allies and people need to find their own uh, comfort though
2: you're listening to forum i'm mina kim nate writes i greatly appreciate you fighting the good fight all these years much respect to you Reverend Al Sharpton, I have to ask you about tonight. I mean, we've got the first presidential debate. And first, I mean, what do you think of the fact that uh, the debate tonight is not expected, the moderator is not expected to bring up climate change at all?
4: I think that it is absurd. Uh, The issues that he's bringing up are important, uh, including he's bringing up the whole question of racism and violence. He's bringing up uh, clearly COVID-19 But all of that operates based on the planet being here. And climate change is the basis of any societal future. And uh, I think that it is absurd that that is not one of the uh, discussion or debate points, especially in the first debate.
2: I mean, you mentioned that race and, and violence in U.S. cities, some have pointed out that they're concerned that it really sounds like an extension of Trump campaign rhetoric to try to bring it up in that context. But-
4: I, I agree. I think that what disturbed me when I saw that is why is it combined race and violence? Like it is already connecting to the violence. First of all, 95% of the rallies and marches around the country have not been violent. And some that are violent have been perpetrated by law enforcement coming in, creating the violence. And we've seen cases in Minneapolis where there were supremacists that came and tried to act like they were part of the uh, demonstrators and they did the violence. Uh, So why are you linking that uh, it's the same subject, race and violence? I think that there's the question of racism, the question of bigotry. And if you want to talk about violence separately, fine. But I, I, I agree that it should not be linked. But uh, the fact that climate change is not there, I think, is something absurd. I can't think of a better way.
2: Yeah. How would you like people to? And we just have 30 seconds. to. What do you want them to really be watching for tonight as president? Well, it's going to be yeah.
4: Trump on the defensive. He's going to come uh, blasting and trying to uh, rattle Biden. Biden needs to not be rattled. He ought to talk policy and substance. But he ought to also not take any uh, cheap shots from Trump. Uh, I've said on several shows today, you ought to be presidential, but not be a punk. Let him know that I'm not going to be rattled. I'm going to stand up to you. I'll answer every shot, but then I'm also going to talk about health care and climate change and policing, because I have something to say, but I'm not going to take your mess either. You should go substance, but don't let Trump get away looking like he's afraid to engage
2: you. The Reverend
4: Trump will use that.
2: <laughs> the Reverend Al Sharpton. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.